Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast hoping someone will come to its aid. My name's Corey Hazelhurst and it's a slightly different podcast this week. Steve and I aren't recording an episode this week, which, let's be honest listeners, is which is probably just as well, given 2021 seems to have inputted Matt Hancock, tabloid sting and sex scandal into their random plot generator device for this year. What we have instead is an excerpt from the conversation Steve and I had a couple of weeks ago after the G20 summit which talks a bit about the global vaccine programme, issues of vaccine justice, and also the row that was bubbling in the Conservative Party at that time over the foreign aid budget. So after Dave Depper's jaunty theme tune, we'll play that discussion, and then I'll just wrap up with two or three points that have happened since we recorded that chat. Enjoy. and sort of vaccine justice issues and in that podcast we did a few months ago we talked about how India was sort of the big vaccine manufacturing capital of the world and how India's plan was to make enough vaccines to vaccinate its own population and also then try and distribute a lot of vaccines to its neighbours and to sort of I think improve its world standing again that's not really happened has it I mean partly I think because of the quite calamitous extra wave of coronavirus that has engulfed India over over this year so there haven't been the amount of vaccines produced for the world that they, they thought would would be made so part of what this summit was aiming to do was to provide more vaccines to uh, countries that didn't have them tend to be the more poorest countries in the world except um, I suppose there's been an agreement hasn't there for one billion vaccines which is according to some campaigners about 10 billion short of what's needed because if you were going to try and vaccinate the whole world you'd need 11 billion vaccines so in that sense a billion sort of a bit of a drop in the ocean isn't it yeah yeah it's it's you know it's still significant and good progress but it's not enough um at the end of the day and and i think you're right that the, the situation in india has just kind of hampered so much of uh the global um production of the uh of, of, of vaccines just because they, they have so much capacity um to, to or had i should say so much capacity to be able to produce um you know uh, pharmaceuticals and, and things like that over there but the mismanagement uh, by the indian government the um the the emergence of I believe we're meant to be calling it the Delta vaccine, uh, the, sorry, the Delta variant now, uh, how, which which obviously emerged within India it, it itself and is now kind of like starting to spread and making its way into into other countries, has kind of like caused almost like a double whammy of impacts. You've got on the one hand, like India's just not been able to produce what they should have been able to produce, which just slows down vaccine production, which just slows down the amount that can be made available for the rest of the world. And the spread of the Delta variant means that, like, let's use the UK as an example here, you know, we're, we're meant to be like next week, you know, rolling into Freedom Day and, and everything. But the reality is we're probably going to, that's probably going to be delayed because of the Delta variant, because we need to just go, you know what, we just need to get a few more people vaccine, vaccinated right now. 
And if that's happening, if that happens in a lot of other countries in various decision making uh, kind of like rooms, what you what potentially ends up happening is more and more countries just go, you know what? And if if it wasn't for the Delta variant, they'd be they'd be going, okay, we can afford to give a few more vaccines out in this direction over here, whatever that looks like. Um, but now with the Delta variant, they're just like, you know what? We can't afford to do that. And that and like you can't even necessarily critique or, or criticize in an unfair uh, for, for for that being the wrong the wrong thing to do um, for, for 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 most governments. So it is a very tricky situation still, and uh, the mismanagement of the crisis in India has just had a global knock on effect here. The thing that kind of gets me, and I feel like the one there's one thing that I think Britain. Um, could could do that could be really helpful here is that AstraZeneca um, produced the Oxford vaccine um, they were they've been producing it for zero cost sorry zero profit they've just been charging it at cost they've been getting an awful lot of crap and an awful lot of um, you know negative stuff for the for the for the for, for the role as a result of the rollout of the vaccine and they've actually been doing something that's actually pretty pretty good like and and I don't I do not think that AstraZeneca have gotten quite enough credit to to the fact that they that they have not been making a profit off of this. One of the kind of like discussion points that's kind of done the rounds relatively recently um, over the past month or two has been you know around the uh, kind of like the trademark copyright or or whether or not it should be allowable for other companies to produce the um, vaccines that that other companies have developed. If I were Britain and uh, I'd be leaning on AstraZeneca right now to go, you aren't making money off of this. We st- you still need to fulfill your contracts and everything, and we t- we totally get that. But if you sell this to other, if you uh, allow other companies to produce this, then fantastic. That then actually opens up a lot more possibilities in terms of people being able to to get vaccines. You're not losing out on any money on this you're not making profit so you get the you get the really good pr you get the really good um kind of like write-up of as as the pharmaceutical company that's doing the right thing um which will do wonders for you in, in in a number of different ways but that doesn't seem to be what's happening and it really agitates me. So, and I, I suspect a big part of it is probably just because the British government isn't thinking like that because any business, 100%, any business will never kind of willingly go to that kind of place, especially in the pharmaceutical sector because of the, you know, the, the potential precedent it sets and all kind of stuff. But if you have a, the British government kind of pressurizing them to do it, you might get somewhere. But it doesn't look like that's what's happening here at all. And that might be one way that you could start to resolve this disparity between the number of vaccines that are being made available for the rest of the world versus what's actually needed. Yeah, I wonder if part of that is because um, of Boris Johnson's remark, which I, I think he made in private rather than public, the reason why they're able to get a, a vaccine so quickly was because of greed. When as actually, as you say, it's because of scientists being publicly funded on peak country, companies like AstraZeneca yeah. offering it at cost. Ab- 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 absolutely, and uh, yeah, again, probably one of those those things that one of those few kind of like guiding principles that Boris Johnson Johnson d- does probably have, maybe getting in the way of that. 
uh, of that kind of approach because it doesn't match whatever view, worldview he does possess. And it's also, it's, it's this, again, we've talked a little bit about Global Britain on the podcast and what it actually means. And it's, there's something about sort of UK soft power in there as well, which, again, Brexit has sort of helped obliterate because as a country, it looks like we can't take our words in international agreements. Part of this seems to also be about um, the... And, and, and part of that kind of acting, uh, having international commitments, I suppose, was also about um, international aid, which if we just finish with this maybe very, very quickly, which was a bit of a bit of quite a big issue in the in the Tory party, hasn't it? Where one of the the, the, the Cameron got one of the things the Cameron government committed to was uh, Britain spending 0.7% of its GDP on aid. And it, the Tory manifesto in 2019 said that they would keep this 0.7% of GDP being spent um, on international aid. That was then cut by the Johnson government to half a percent. They said was because um, they needed to repair finances after coronavirus and so needed to spend less money, which doesn't really take into account that if it's if it's a set fit, percentage of GDP, the figure will go up and down anyway. Um, it's just the proportion stays the same. At which point there was going to be a pretty big Tory rebellion, wasn't there? The, the amendment wasn't uh, selected by the speaker for arcane political reasons that we'll not quite go into yet but it was interesting that it did seem like you had this wide number of Tory backbenchers who would have been quite happy to back a uh, a vote to restore that 0.7 percent of GDP commitment so one of the things the Johnson government is talking about doing is saying that any help with vaccines it gives us sort of part of the aid budget even though that's not technically part of the 0.5% figure first off like the notion of kind of like reclassifying spending to count as um, international aid to, to try and reduce the amount that's actually being spent on international aid isn't necessarily a new thing I think it was under David Cameron um, at various points, some, there were some like discussions as to whether or not it would be possible for the UK to reclassify certain aspects of defence expenditure um, as uh, as international aid, um, just to try and make it so that they could actually cut budgets um, as part of austerity, uh, still and, and still claim they're hitting, you know, that that zero point seven target. Um, so that the Tories. Uh, and, and Johnson in particular would be kind of ap approaching that sort of uh, nonsense does not surprise me. Um, fundamentally, though, like the, the issue is, I was like, let's, let's remove like the rights and wrongs, the morality argument or, or whatever. Let's just focus here just on the pure politics of it. Government's been saved because the speaker has, has, has uh, listened to the clerk's advice and said, you know what, this doesn't fit foot forward in remit. We can't have this vote now. Speaker did, however, say that the House should definitely have a say on it in some capacity. So it's not a, not a win, outright, outright win for the government, because what that probably means is because it, it was Andrew Mitchell who was like spearheading all of this, wasn't it? Yeah, because well, he was... Um, yeah, Deep, Deep, Deep Deep yeah, yeah, and, and part of the reason, just to put in before you finish that off, um, it, the merging of the Diffid department with the Foreign Office is also part of the shows the government not taking it particularly seriously. Yeah, but yeah, so you've got uh, Andrew Mitchell who's spearheading this, um, uh, this, 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 this rebellion uh, amongst the Tory ranks, um, backed up, I believe, also by Theresa May, who is continuing to be a thorn in the side of of, of Johnson and uh, and his administration in many ways. Um, 
but uh, they're, they're spearheading this. And they will have been paying attention to what the uh, what the Speaker of the House said, that the House should have a say on this in some capacity, which means at some point they will put something in and it will be accepted. And then the government has to, ha- comes back with the, pro- the same problem they had before. Now, the not the kind of the redesignating vaccines as as international aid to try and hit that 0.7 figure is maybe a workaround but it's a short-term workaround that works for 2021 what happens in 2022 what happens in 2023 and 2024 what happens all the years after 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 that you're still are you just hoping that this argument goes away? Because the, the, the reality is Andrew Mitchell knows that his time on the front bench is done. He knows he's not coming back. At this point, he's probably quite happy just going, you know what, I'm just going to be MP for Sutton Coalfield until I decide not that I don't want to do it anymore, um, which could be a good, I don't know, I'm not quite sure how old, he, how old he is, could be 10, 15, 20 years. He, he will continually push this because like, Mitchell has a lot of faults, but he genuinely cares about international aid um, and does see its role as being very important to not just morally, but also in terms of international politics and, and its role it plays in Britain having influence. Um, and uh, he's not going anywhere, which means this issue probably isn't going anywhere. And I can easily see this becoming a, a an argument every budget up until like, or at least probably maybe not every budget, but like the next couple of budgets, I could easily see this being a thing. Um, and if they can't get the, if they can get, if they can't get the numbers on the first one, on the first attempt to get this done, they'll probably have another stab at it. If the government can beat them twice and hold on, then it will probably be end up dropped. Like May and Mitchell may continue kind of pressure pressuring for it, but the the actual the bulk of the backbenchers probably won't because it's just like it's a losing battle. We've tried tried twice now. There's 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 no point. Um, but there's probably at least one more showdown to happen on this, if not two. So the government needs to actually come up with a solution to the problem rather than just a sticking plaster. But again, this is Boris Johnson's government. They don't do solutions. They do do sticking plasters. I think the the solution, as far as I'm aware, is that they're going to try and have essentially, I think, an opposition day debate on it rather than a binding vote on it. So I think you're right. Lindsay Hoyle, I think, said he wanted a binding vote on the issue. And um, from what I've seen, the the Johnson government is going to try not to have that. But then the government still needs to put effort into that to to um, to make sure that that if if, even if it is a non-binding vote, that they win that vote, because if it looks like they don't have the numbers for it, guess what? Showdown two happens because now Andrew Mitchell can see I've got the votes, Mr. Johnson. And I think the interesting thing will be, do you end up with that sort of caucus of MPs who vote against Johnson's government? Because I think Katie Balls made an interesting point um, in an article for The Guardian on this, that Johnson's support essentially is is about a mile wide and an inch deep. And you can easily see uh, given a lot of the issues that that we've talked about, you could have a sort of caucus of MPs who will be about not not I don't think necessarily on every issue, but certainly on a on a few key issues in the future, and that could be a bit thorny politically, as you say. It's not like yeah, you've, you can you, there's probably a few of the newer MPs who will keep stum for to want to kind of rise up the ministerial ladder, but a lot of as you say, people like Andrew Mitchell, Theresa May, probably not. Yeah. 
Yeah, ab- 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 absolutely. They're not going to like they they know their 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 careers as front frontline politicians are done, so they don't care. Like they are actually just going to do what backbenchers should do, which is hold the government to account. Changing topics slightly, I genuinely do think that the one of the like Theresa, like I was a bit baffled when Theresa May stood stayed on to to continue being an MP after she finished being being prime minister and was ousted. But I'm really glad she did. Like it's very much showing up just how shallow the House of Columns is, and that we don't have you know, your Gordon Browns, your Tony Blairs, even your David Camerons and George Osborns in, in Parliament anymore, because the act of being involved in government means you can actually better hold the government to account. And obviously on the Labour side, because we had the, the, the vast majority of MPs haven't been in government, they don't have that. And, an all, on, and on the um, the Tory side, an awful lot of the senior ones are no longer there, either having stepped down before that or have been ousted from the party. Uh, well, May was a, a deeply flawed Home Secretary and yeah. an even more deeply flawed Prime, Prime Minister. Minister. But um, there is no doubting that sort of sense of duty, which I think is why she stayed on when most other yeah. um, Prime Ministers haven't done. Yeah, It's a problem, I think, with a lot of the intake of the Commons generally at the moment. There is a, a lack of experience. And I, th- I think in terms of... In terms of the Labour MPs, um, there's not many now who I, I think have served. Am I right saying that a ministerial role? There are not many. I think certainly not many front benches. There's a, there's a few who sort of junior position. Um, but again, one of the stats in the last year's leadership contest was about the the amount of Labour MPs that non. I, I think the only person of the leadership or deputy leader posts who'd had a, a front bench role in the new Labour years was Don Butler. So there's just a lack of of governing experience. Yeah. Hope you hope you enjoyed that discussion. Just two or three quick reflections from me on some of the things we talked about that we didn't mention in that discussion. One of them is there's an interesting story that came out this week in the Guardian. The interesting thing that came out this week from the Independent Commission for Aid, a public body, reports to Parliament, talking about the cuts on UK aid, which it says have been imposed with inadequate transparency. It's become difficult to access strategy papers, it's hard to hold officials to count, and the first round of aid cuts apparently was administered at such speed serious mistakes have made, and in fact, major damage has been done to major bilateral aid programmes. So it looks like the merging of the Department for International Development with the Foreign Office has had some pretty significant consequences to the aid budget and also and also Britain's reputation in the world generally. And that sort of brings me on to the second thing I suppose which also relates to Global Britain which we, we talked, we touched on in the episode and I can't believe I missed the opportunity to bring in Brexit into this, and especially with the discovery of the Delta variant in the UK. And it does seem to be that the reason why the Delta variant is so widespread in the UK, particularly compared to other European countries, is because of the slowness of the Johnson government to actually close borders with India, which seems to be because Boris Johnson was hoping to uh, keep relations happy with the Indian government so that we could 
so that the UK could try and get a, a trade deal with India. And I think what that shows about global Britain essentially is that for, for all that the those on the Brexit side have tried to champion this sovereignty and this buccaneering free trade nation trading with other countries, what it really shows is that actually in a post-Brexit world, actually, I think global Britain is more operating from a position of weakness rather than a position of strength. You can see that as well with having to, uh, one of the first people who's been invited to Downing Street uh, since uh, foreign leaders have been able to travel again is Viktor Orban, the populist Hungarian far-right leader. And it does feel like the Brexit debate is leading to, or, or, or the Britain in a post-Brexit world outside the EU, there is that lack of soft power and having to essentially try and appease lots of different countries. Um, and we, we talk a little bit about the row in the Conservative Party over age, particularly the fact that there's a few, that, that, that Johnson's supporters are a mile wide but an inch deep. And I think you are seeing that in some of the Tory post-mortems after the Cheshire Ammunition by-election. We talked about that on the podcast last week as well. But that idea that you've got this uneasy conservative coalition of northern red wall seats and southern seats where issues like planning issues like leveling up issues like government debt and government spending they're going to become i think quite significant issues over the next few months and we'll definitely be talking about them on the podcast i'll leave it there for now but thank you for listening to this please subscribe on itunes rate and review us if you do get a moment just help people discover the show um as Stephen here, I'll do the plug for our Patreon page. If you want to support us on patreon.com, not enough champagne, you'll get access to exclusive podcasts, any blog posts that we do, and it does help us produce this podcast in perpetuity, which you know is a jolly good thing, isn't it? Uh, James Cram, designer logo, you can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. I'm on Twitter at Paperback Writer. Steve's at Acoustic Radical. You can find the podcast at notenoughchampagne.com, facebook.com slash notenoughchampagne or at nochampagnepod. Happy plotting, everyone.